You're listening to the No Name Photo Show. It's not spouse approved. It may or may not be safe for work. We'll see. And now here's your host, Brian Matiash, and me, Sharky James. So, Brian, here we are, episode 26. We have sex vision tuppled our episode output, and let's keep it clean, Sharky. I'm not even going there. I'm not touching that, so to speak. Yeah. So let's, uh, you know, I think I hear another voice here from the great white north. Why don't you introduce him? Sure. I, I keep trying to dial in our sound and everything, but somehow people keep managing to make it onto the show. So uh, listen, we went through the trouble. He's here. We're very excited. Uh, I'd like everyone to give a, a warm welcome to our friend, Don Kamarechka. Don, please uh, say hi and tell people a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me on the show, guys. It's uh, you know, I've, I've listened to a number of your rants and rambles and arguments in the previous episodes, and uh, I just kind of felt the need to uh, jump into the ring myself uh, and get beaten up about it. But, uh, you know, We've connected uh, various times in the past, but uh, I mean, I'm a photographer, educator, author. Uh, I do a lot of work in what I call the unseen world. So this is the stuff that you can't see with your own eyes. That's macro photography and infrared and uh, an astrophotography or anything like that. And ghosts. I, I haven't found a ghost yet. I mean, I haven't actually been looking for him, but uh, hey, maybe that could be another avenue to explore if I don't need to make any money at it anyhow. Oh, Sharky. <laughs> hey, that'd be cool. Um, right. So I guess, I mean, ask Don. I think, I think Don's been accomplished in, in already in a number of very, very defined uh, genres of photography. So I don't know. Uh, do you want to take on ghosts on? You know, Is that something that appeals to you? I, I don't, I don't think so, but I did just buy a fog machine. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I was trying to find a way to add, um, extra depth and dimension to 3d photographs because 3d uh, imagery is another one of my obscure passions that has a very very small audience but uh you know i did some tests the other day using a mixture of ultraviolet fluorescence and fog so the fog was kind of glowing from within and it was a really cool experiment that's about as close as i'll get to a ghost fair enough you ought to try some atmosphere aerosol. As long as you backlight it or sidelight it a bit, it looks great. Yeah, same stuff. Well, I mean, same idea. You know, this fog machine is definitely less portable. Very true. Yeah. All right, Brian, why don't you tell us what do we have up in today's episode? Sure. So, uh, you know, I usually kind of preface this whenever we have a guest, but it's always important since when we do have guests, it's not so much about the guest. It's more the guest is kind of like a third host. And a lot of times we want to pair the topics we talk about with something that they are very knowledgeable about. So our first topic is going to be talking about the importance of finding kind of your niche as a photographer. Uh, it, it, what is it about that? You know, some photographers, or I would say a decent amount of photographers, uh, tend to veer towards kind of uh, being a jack of all trades and a master of none. So is there something to digging in and finding something that you really want to you know, rather than having wide experience, you have deep experience. There are very few people who I can think who are as, as qualified to talk about this as Don. So I'm excited about that. Second topic is uh, Sharky, you sent me this article last week from Neiman Labs. Uh, the title is Are News Publishers Directly Liable for Embedding Tweets That Contain Images Not Created by That Tweeter? So there's a lot there uh, in terms of Twitter's terms of service versus, you know, who owns a copyright, what's fair use, and all that good stuff. It also kind of segues to a video that Zach Arias recently did with the owner or the founder or the CEO of Unspoken. Flash, Michael Cho. That's a really good video that we'll be link to at the show notes at nonamephotoshow.com. So with that, Don, let's just start. What is your interpretation of a photographer who has a niche? This is an interesting concept because I think we all start 
as that jack of all trades. I mean, we have to. We uh, add photography to our everyday life. We end up taking pictures of our family and the, the hikes we go on and, you know, the cities that we visit when we travel. And I think that we have to kind of funnel that down. And it only comes with experience and figuring out what works and where our passions are and uh, where our areas of expertise grow in. So I think this is an organic process that every photographer kind of goes through. And if you consider yourself a generalist, it might just be that you're not far enough down on this particular path. And there's some misinformation about this. I mean, I've heard photographers, Rick Salmon is famous for saying uh, his specialty is not specializing. But that's not true because he does specialize quite heavily in certain areas, but they are very diverse uh, and some of them are niches. And he's very high climbing up on those ladders in these specific areas. And if you look at it overall, it says, yeah, this guy's into everything. Well, he's into some very specific things and a lot of them. And that's okay, because as soon as you can do that with your work, and I've done it myself, I mean, uh, during the winter months, I'm known for my snowflake photography. This past year, I've come up quite a bit with ultraviolet fluorescence, and I mentioned 3D photography, and, uh, and all of these other things. These are niches. And it's important to know that I get, you know, booked at camera clubs and conferences to go and speak in these niches specifically. It's a large part of my, uh, my income to educate people on them because I end up being an expert in this particular area. And people are always looking for that expert. It was funny because I, uh, I came in to do a, uh, a documentary film with Discovery Channel on the topic of mosquitoes. And I had worked with one of the producers at, uh, at BBC for a different project, and he knew I was a, an exceptional macro photographer and videographer. So when they were looking for something for this Discovery Channel shoot, they brought me in. And so from there, it kind of, it, it just kind of picks up and runs with it because they had this idea of me photographing uh, mosquitoes, doing some focus stacking and some very fine tuned, very specific stuff. And then I just said, hey, you know what, why don't I try and photograph a mosquito using ultraviolet light? And their budget for me definitely went up when they saw the results. And a lot of that footage ended up in the title card of that documentary series because I had these niches mastered to a great enough degree that I was able to uh, to, to get a, a, a working gig because of it and again and again. So the further you flow into these, the deeper you go down those rabbit holes, I think the more valuable you are to a very specific audience. But in a global village as we are today, that audience is going to find you. And, and the value, there will be a connect there. It's funny you mentioned that, Don, because Brian's been trying to get a gig with the canine channel to do something on fleas. <laughs> oh, sure. Shark, you know, you were so strong in 25 with the font joke and 26, you really kind of hit, hit the wall there and we're just going to have to work on it. But I did want to ask you, Sharky. So like, what, what do you think in terms of, do you, would you say you have a niche in your career? Well, so I was a photojournalist, of course, and you have to be a generalist. You're not a master of them all, but you're really proficient in many of them. So you have to be able to do everything from a check presentation, which is grueling. No, to just, you know, sports and, and uh, breaking news. And, you know, you go up in a helicopter sometime. There's many disciplines that you have to be quite proficient at. And so a lot of photojournalists afterward, what they'll do is they'll go into wedding photography or if they can, they'll shoot that on the side because that's a storytelling kind of thing, right, that they can make money on. So they end up going from something that's more general to something that's more niche because they have those skills and they can translate that into making money. Now, for myself, my specialty when I was a photojournalist was shooting sports. They would always send me downstate to the championships, etc., because I excelled at shooting sports. But as we talked about not too long ago, I'm done with sports. Like, you know, like I've done that. It, it's not my passion anymore. If I go shoot a game again, which I probably will, 
I'll enjoy it, but there's other things I want to do. And so I'm doing more portraiture now and I want to do some, when it warms up, I want to do some more landscape photography. I want to stretch. I want to get into these other areas because you get bored with something. And I generally recommend when someone starts out, you know, throw everything at the wall, try something, just try something first off and see if you like it or not. If you don't go to something else and you might be a generalist at first and over time you will find yourself going to a couple of different areas that you really enjoy. And that'll justify spending all the money we do on gear <laughs> and maybe making some money on it, et cetera. I think that's the way to go. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. So I'm, I'm packing a bunch of stuff up, going through old junk here in the house. And I came across my very first set of business cards when I was you know, fashioning myself to be a photographer, like a, a professional photographer back in like 2007, 2008. And it, it had like, it had commercial architecture, wedding, portrait, senior on, on, you know, and when I found, I just found these cards the other day. And so I was excited to bring it up here. You know, to me, I don't, part of the whole, you know, starting off as a generalist and then finding your niche, obviously there is a, at some point I do believe in, and Don, I would like to hear your thoughts on this at some point, you, you know, especially once you find something that resonates with you, I think the natural course of action is to want to really master it, to really understand the finer details and nuances about it. But then the other thing is, a quite, at least for me, speaking of it from a business perspective, and this is again, something Don, I would really like your point is sustainability. Like how sustainable is it for a photographer to, yeah, I can, I, I'll shoot this 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 new restaurant and then I'll shoot your baby portraits and then I'll shoot your maternity session and maybe a doudoir session and then let's go out and shoot some travel photography all in the name of business. I, I don't know that sustainability in terms of finding work, but also sustainability in your uh, notoriety. So, you know, again, I, I consider Don, even though Don said you said you have different kind of verticals, deep verticals with uh, with ultraviolet with, you know, I always uh, consider you the snowflake whisperer. Like to me, there is no one on earth that I am aware of. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but who who has such a keen grasp of snowflakes and the thing that i love about it don it's not just that you know how to take a really beautiful photo of a snowflake but reading your posts your snowflake a day posts which i look forward to every day on facebook the depth you're not just showing me a beautiful photo i'm actually learning about the structure you know the fractals the geometry of a snowflake so talk about the sustainability and talk about you know the virtues of it. Well, if you could do that doudoir session in the morning and an architectural <laughs> shoot at night and your schedule is full, being able to, you know, fill it, go for it by all means. But I don't think anybody is going to hire you as a wedding photographer when you also have pet photography and architecture photography and, uh, you know, sports photography on the same business card because it means you're not serious about the wedding photography specifically. So from a business perspective, I think that you'd need to brand yourself separately in certain areas. Thankfully, a lot of my stuff, like I said, it kind of covers under the umbrella of the unseen world. And that is the moniker that I state for all this stuff I can't see with my own eyes. And I'm able to brand myself accordingly, right? And snowflakes are a very big part of that. But uh, you mentioned something about the posts that I make. I don't just post a photograph. And I find that people like you, Brian, you you actually read. This is like a full written page of me blabbering about the physics of a snowflake. I am shocked as to how many people actually read that nonsense. I mean, it's, it's not nonsense. It is. It, sure, it, sure. But the, the point is that it adds value. It adds to the narrative, but it also adds to my personality as a content creator. And you have to understand that your brand is you. It, your, your work is a product of the brand, but you are the brand itself. 
And uh, so long as you have the ability to master that, and as a photographer, you have to be multidisciplinary, uh, a multimediographer, you know, I've heard the term used before, but that means writing, that means speaking, that means taking great pictures and having a good rapport with clients. All of this stuff has to come together. So you have to, I mean, my background, my formal education is advertising, and it has nothing to do with photography in general, but a lot of advertising is visual communication and, uh, you know, the art of persuasion. And that is a really important piece of the puzzle if you're trying to do this commercially and, and, and for profit. I know I'm very lucky. The kind of verticals that I've climbed to to shoot the, the weird stuff that I do and make money at it to pay the bills is very uncommon. And it's... I'm been no stranger to, you know, 100 hour weeks and uh, and spending a lot of time and effort to build that up. It's not a job for the faint of heart. Uh, and yeah, there could be a month that goes by where I'm working 100 hour weeks and I don't see a penny come in. And so you've got to be prepared for that. Uh, there's a lot of different facets towards this. But if you can take that niche, let, and I built it around my passions. If you are passionate about slot car photography or slot cars in general, okay, so let's say that is your hobby on the side, that is your passion, become a slot car photographer. Maybe they have a national slot car competition in the world. I don't know. This is not my thing. But if they do, they're going to type in slot car photographer into Google. And if you're the best because there's three of them in the world, then you're going to get a job there. And that's not going to pay the bills for the entire year, mind you, but it's going to be a piece of the puzzle. I don't know. Brian's going to do a flea a day, I think, now and rebrand himself <laughs> as the fleetographer. What's this whole obsession, Sharky, with fleas? This is the second time it's come up. <laughs> well, you've got a dog, Kodak, it's called. And I was thinking, why not fleas? A flea a day. You're the fleetographer, the flea whisperer. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to have to bust out my macro lens then. But I mean, to me, I, I agree with you, Don. You found this, you were fortunate enough to find, I would say, a space. I, I've, you're the one and only, then again, I've never, I've never really searched for any other photographer who specialized in snowflakes, but you're the first person who I came, you know, stumbled upon back in the Google days. And as far as I'm concerned, like we, you know, we bought your book, we have your, your little snowflake ornament. Like we, uh, for us, it, when I say we, Nicole and I, we, we're big proponents of supporting fellow photographers in that respect, especially because of how deep your brand is. Just like we've supported Sharky with listening to his show, the Petapixel Photography Podcast, before this show ever started, because you, you carve out, and it's an interesting thing that maybe Sharky won't talk about in terms of like your niche, not necessarily in terms of like the photography, but people know you as this podcaster, this kind of like news host of photography, right? So I think it's also important not to go too far down this topic, but there, there are ways to pivot around within the photography universe of niche uh, and, and kind of figuring out what it is that you get to bring to the table. Well, like we always say, there's there's a lot of uh, photography podcasts out there where you get on a guest and you talk to them, just you know, one on one kind of interview thing. There's a lot of those, and then what I call the two guys in a basement show, which we ended up doing here with the No Name Photo Show. And uh, you know what I'm known for is doing a photography podcast that is news based and pithy and highly edited, and, and you know it takes a lot of work. And apparently, no one had done the type of show that I quite do. There's, you know, there's This Week in Photo and stuff. There's a lot of news related kind of shows, but no one did it. However, you describe how I do it. I don't know how I would describe it. It's a mess. It's a hot mess, but people like it. Sure. So that's whatever it is. That's my niche right there is, you know, news twice a week, photography, news and opinion, I'd guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've said this before. Back when I was doing my live show, you know, the, I really the thing I loved about your show is that it was not just news, like just kind of like 
reading off press releases, but there was an opinion to it. And that's what I was looking for. Uh, and I hadn't found it. So serendipity. Now we have episode 26 here and we we're talking with Don about niches and we're actually about to segue to, to topic number two. Well, before we get to that, talking about uh, opinions on photo things, Brian uh, and Sharky, both of you guys have been co-pilots, I call it, on my, my new podcast, Photo Geek Weekly. And this is just the geekiest stuff that I can drum up, you know, new patents and sensor technology or, you know, uh, light science and, and, and other interesting things uh, that normally don't get covered on the regular photography podcast ecosystem. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for something different, that's another niche, right? And so we're only uh, 14, 15 episodes in or so. And uh, so we're relatively new, just like the No Name Photo Show. But the audience is growing leaps and bounds. You know, we just doubled our viewership in the last four episodes. So uh, we're really happy about that. And it just goes back to just uh, put a pin in it, the point of finding those niches and exploring them, making them as powerful for you as a brand as you can make them. There are images out there that people have not made before. It's getting harder and harder to get into that area. But if you can push into new limits, I mean, I have found some work with documentary film crews. I had such a crew here in my studio for two days this month filming me doing all sorts of the eccentric photography things that I am known for. And hopefully that'll be airing soon, but I can't give any more details on it at this point. Find that that one thing that you can hang your hat on, and that is just the opening, uh, the, the, the opening to that rabbit hole that you can dive down and you have no idea how far it goes. It will not have an ending effectively if you can continue to explore it. You know, for me, be speaking as one of your co-pilots, that was one of the things about the show that I found really refreshing was the, just the depth of the topics we were able to to dive into. Admittedly, stuff the stuff we talked about with regards to uh, some of those Canon sensor patents, the frame, you know, the high frame rate cameras and stuff. I don't know necessarily, we're more of a thematic show here, but I found it very interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm a subscriber just like I am to Petapixel. I'm a subscriber to your show because it offers something different. Petapixel, I subscribe because that was a niche that I had not found. You know, yes, Petapixel is not the first photo podcast. It's not going to be the last one. But at the time when I was looking for, I had a specific kind of need that filled it. And so you become loyal and then you grow from there, like you said. And that made me uh, it's actually kind of funny thinking about a sharky, you know, that I, I kind of called it out on my on my live show. And then we started chatting and we became good friends. And then we decided something very stupid, like, let's start our own podcast. So so with that, guys, let's let's segue on to no, actually, Don, did you tell people where you can where they can find nope, your uh, podcast? photogeekweekly.com. And uh, if you just type photo geek weekly into iTunes or Android or anywhere where fine podcasts are found, I'm sure you will find it. Cool. So everyone, yeah, uh, if you haven't heard it, definitely check it out. Um, Sharky, you sent me this story. Do you want to lead us into it um, in terms of, again, this is from Neiman Lab, and we're going to link to it at our show notes on nonamephotoshow.com. Our publisher is directly liable for embedding tweets that contain images not created by that tweeter. So I, I share a photo from something or other, you know, a sports event or a cool, beautiful sunset. And uh, now our publishers, you know, if they read or if they embed that tweet, are they now kind of like liable for something? So Sharky, talk to us about this. It's a tricky area. And I don't think anyone knows 100% what the right answer is, because you just assume like with Twitter's terms of service and such, if you put a photo up on Twitter, you're giving it just by the fact. I don't think you can turn off the ability for someone to retweet one of your tweets, can you? No. So therefore, knowing that, you know, and you obviously signed up and you agreed to their EULA or their, you know, terms and conditions, whatever, you agreed that if you put a photo, let's say it's your photo up on Twitter, 
that it can be retweeted and you're giving that ability to everyone. It could go completely wide. Now, that doesn't mean someone can use it commercially, etc., but they can retweet you. That's the whole point of Twitter is to be able to retweet other people's tweets and such and have things grow from there. So do you want to talk a little bit more about how crazy things are getting with this now and and uh, the controversy and, and doubt about these things? Yeah, let me just read the, the subtitle and then I want to get Don's take. So there's the, the title and then it says a New York federal judge ruled that when publishers from the Boston Globe to Vox Media to Breitbart, quote, caused the embedded tweets to appear on their websites, their actions violated plaintiffs exclusive display right, end quote. So they're saying that if you retweet things and, and it lives in the Twitter ecosystem, that's cool. But once you embed that into your site, you're then you're doing something different with that and bringing it to your audience in a way that you're displaying and you've got advertising and part of your business model. And that's not cool. I think it dives a little bit deeper than that. Um, if you take a look at um, like if you were to post your own photograph on Twitter, I mean, you own the rights to it. It's it's yours. Nobody else. There's no other entanglements there. Then you've agreed through the uh, the EULA that uh, embedded tweets are OK. That's fine. But what if I'm a photographer or n- not even a what if I'm just um, uh, a participant or an observer at the Olympics is a great example going on right now. You know, people have exclusive display rights to content that is shot at the Olympics. And I'm not sure exactly how that varies, but this is a perfect scenario. Uh, what if I put an image on Twitter of uh, gold gold medalists or something, uh, some interactions with the crowd? It's my photograph, but I don't actually have the display rights for it. Or if I take a screen grab from the TV broadcast from the Olympics and I share that, well, I also don't have the rights to that either. So this is where it gets sticky. If a news outlet takes that and displays it on their website, I didn't have the rights to it to begin with. And so that can't be transferred to the news agency. Normally, that would be covered under fair use, I assume. I'm not a lawyer, but um, so long as all the proper credits and everything are given, fair use applies, except with exclusive display rights, which you would not have ownership of. And I think that's the crux of this here. Correct. And uh, so at the end of the day, it's like, okay, somebody rolls up and, uh, you know, with a pickup truck with a, you know, big screen TV in the back of it and offers it to you for 50 bucks and their eyes are shifting left and right and you buy it. Yeah, you've paid for it. But that does not mean that you're not in possession of stolen property, right? So the same logic, I think, applies to this argument. And it is going to be appealed, of course, because at the end of the day, uh, people would look back to uh, some previous court cases, and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. I think Ariba Corp was uh, was the defendant in it. And basically, it's called the server test, where where is the image in reality? You know, are you hosting it or is that image existing somewhere else? If you embed a tweet, you're not hosting the tweet. Twitter is hosting the tweet. And if we go back into the days of, uh, you know, Internet 1.0, hot linking was a thing when bandwidth was an issue. If you didn't want to host the image yourself, you would just link to it from whatever source it originally was on. And that kind of gets around some of these rules because you're not hosting the content. The server that's hosting it is uh, is the one that's responsible. This court ruling flies against that. And I think that's why it's such a big deal right now. And media is up in arms. And these are big media outlets, right? You know, you've got some big media that are 
going to be, you know, filing appeals for this. So this legal battle is not going to be over any anytime soon. But we are in a bit of a purgatory area where an initial ruling, or at least some statements have been made that state that this shouldn't be done, what does the media do now between a final answer? Uh, Because with all of the sports stuff around, it's really hard to pin down who owns it and who the original publisher is of anything on Twitter because of memes and the the viral nature of a lot of this content. There, I'll get off my soapbox. No, I think it's great. Sharky, is there anything that you wanted to add to it? Because there was a section here that I wanted to read uh, that kind of gives a little bit of background to that. Nope, Don well covered it. So go ahead with what you're going to say. Yeah. So, you know, they're talking about in terms of, you know, so for example, when I take a photo of my dog and upload that to Twitter, I've given Twitter a license to use that photo in certain ways. And the license extends to using the embed feature. And for those that don't know the embed feature, um, you can word, WordPress and most any kind of mature web blogging platform. All you really need to do is paste the embed URL of an individual tweet, and um, it will be it will display on a on a blog post framed around. And it's it's not the, the all the content exactly like Don said. The entire content lives server wise with Twitter, but it's displayed on your website. You can't go to a content hub like Petapixel or F-Stoppers or or The Verge without seeing some sort of embedded content where they're just referencing it. And so that's what it says here. It says um, in the article, it used to be uh, you would embed a tweet and not worry about clearing your rights to that underlying image. If there was an issue, they'd probably go to Twitter to work it out. If it got taken down under a DMCA, which is a Digital Millennium Copyright Act uh, notice, uh, then the only thing that would happen for you is that the tweet wouldn't load. Now it's saying this suggests you can be you can still be liable, even though you didn't know necessarily that the image wasn't authorized to be posted to Twitter because the court says you are the one displaying it and not Twitter. So here what the court is differentiating is between intent, uh, not who actually in terms like what Don said with the server test, but intent. I intended uh, and let's use the Olympics, which is a brilliant example. And if you the same thing with most any sports, if you watch a sporting event, Super Bowl or even just an, a regular football or hockey game at the end of it there's always a a disclaimer you know fox sports owns the right here you know no dissemination or rebroadcast is allowed without explicit uh, um, approval by you know the the network and that's what i think don right that's what you're talking about basically Mm -hmm. like the olympics is very very protective for example the logos of uh, the olympic logos the five rings they're very protective of that then you know to get press credentials uh you know you are essentially same thing with concerts we talked about this in a previous episode um, with uh, Jack White, who is, um, you know, preventing uh, you can't bring you, your cell phones anymore to take photos. It, that's not necessarily because of a copyright issue. That's more for an experience issue. But there's a whole thing here where if and I don't think that this is going to go anywhere. This is I don't know how you can possibly enforce this. This would rock the way uh, people use uh, the Internet, especially social media platforms. Well, there was a a, a lawsuit, uh, I guess it was a patent infringement suit um, years ago that uh, basically put all podcasts on notice um, that they might be infringing on, on a patent. Um, and that went away. But I think that it was kind of in the same boat where everything that's currently going on would fundamentally either have to completely change or go away. And... Uh, I think that a higher appeals court is going to realize that, that this is, you know, whatever laws are currently in place should allow this to happen without any issue. And one judge uh, should not be allowed to to make such a significant shift in social policy according to our assumptions of the law right now. Um, but we're still in that middle ground right now. And it's it's really scary to think that, okay, we are mired with terms of service everywhere we go. I mean... 
if I were to have read all of those that I've just, you know, blindly given away my firstborn to, I, I would have I would have spent, you know, a hundred hours just reading terms of services that I don't necessarily agree with. Some of the stuff in there are very draconian and but but it's all there. And we are living in a world where we just have to face the fact that terms of service and laws are floating around us like crazy. And this is being argued back and forth, not just in this one case, but all the time. And public opinion doesn't necessarily mesh up with law. I deal with copyright infringement quite often with my work. You know, people will steal it and uh, they'll, you know, make it into products and sell it. And I have lawyers that have to deal with that. You know, how far do you go with protecting your content? What if, you know, someone's old grandma decides to take that image and post it up on uh, on their Twitter feed because it's cute? And then, you know, NBC says, oh, this image is great. It depicts exactly what story we want to run that with. And so we're going to embed that tweet. Well, technically, I could be in the exact same position as the plaintiff here because I did not give uh, that, you know, 70 old, uh, year old grandma permission to use my image that's now in an embedded tweet. So it's not just the big sports and everything. This could affect us if our work is initially, uh, you know, misappropriated. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that ramble, but I'll stop. Well, it, it was a, it was actually perfect because it does allow me to uh, not quite segue, but bring in another story. So you're talking about the uh, permission or, you know, the unwitting use of someone's photos. So let's bring this back. Uh, Unsplash, which is has been a popular topic over the past several weeks, which is uh, essentially a completely rights-free photo sharing website. So people, if you upload a photo to Unsplash and you check a box saying, this is my photo, that photo essentially becomes completely null and void with any sort of copyright whatsoever. You can, I can take the photo and sell it if I wanted to. So like if Don uploaded a snowflake photo to Unsplash, boom, that photo is as good as mine as, as any other on there. And photographer Zach Arias, who, um, you know, is no stranger to kind of, you know, sharing his thoughts on things and, and calling BS. He actually interviewed the CEO, Michael Cho, bringing up a lot of these issues. Because Don, what is to stop someone from taking even just a 2000 pixel photo of yours? Uh, if it's watermarked, just um, uh, uh, clone out the watermark and upload it to Unsplash and boom. You know, that's the problem with something like that website is there are no fail safes. Um, there are no firewalls. And if a photographer doesn't properly understand things, uh, as a lot of hobbyists or amateurs might not, and then they might be uploading their images to Unsplash, um, they might just kind of breeze past the, the whole concept of a model release. And then the person using exactly. the image, even though the photographer took the photograph without a pop proper uh, paper trail for a model release then somebody that takes that image down prints it on a billboard and they think they're completely in the clear because they have all of the permissions in the world. Well, now that person whose likeness is on that billboard never signed off on it and a lot of people are going to have to pay. And this is the crux of, or at least one of the cruxes of the issue that Zach has is exactly that. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it's not just the photo. It's the things in the photo. What if the that photo was uh, appropriated for like a white supremacist ad or something that the person, you know, a lot of times when in model releases, there are certain stipulations that say that as the photographer, this will not be used in, you know, pornographic materials or, you know, these certain compromising political. Yeah, uh, a political, religious, abortion, you name it. I mean, exactly. sensitive areas that uh, that could, you know, come under scrutiny because it doesn't represent the person in the photograph. They don't want to be associated like this beautiful, uh, you know, slim model in, in, a, in a wonderful sort of cityscape thing with an, uh, an ad attacking, you know, abortion clinics within that city. You know, exactly. there, there are lines that have to be drawn very specifically, and the industry as a whole right now, I think, abides by it. 
But people have been giving away photos for free for a long time. And I think that this is really the underlying problem uh, that Unsplash is just a portal to. If you're an amateur photographer and a magazine comes to you and says, uh, you know, Don, we want to run your image on our cover. Uh, it's going to be a huge feather in your cap. Uh, we'll give you great exposure. Jeez, I hate that term. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we'll give you credit. And, uh, and a lot of amateurs would say yes to that. And they shouldn't, but they do. And this problem has been pervasive. What shocked me in the interview uh, that Zach had with the, uh, the, the founder of Unsplash was that only 40% of the images that they, uh, that they find being used actually credit the photographer. Um, I mean, 60% of the images that are being pulled off of this service have absolutely zero attribution towards the artist. And this is a problem with photography somewhat independent of other areas of media. Like if you're a musician, and somebody takes your music for free, you are still represented in it as the artist. I mean, you are intimately involved. People are going to be hearing your voice or, you know, your, your instrument. The same is true of if you're an actor in a movie. And, and, and so they can appreciate you as the artist. But with photography, you are so far removed from that if your name disappears from it that it might as well have never been yours to begin with. Good point. I pre- I definitely can appreciate that. Uh, it's as if just the simple, the, 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 the actual physical act of taking a photo, which is pressing a button, is diminished or it's it's seen as diminished compared to strumming a guitar uh, or, you know, playing a piano and everything that goes with that, which I never really thought of it that way. So, you know, I appreciate you giving me a little bit of that to think about. Sharky, you have anything on this? You want to, you've been kind of quiet and I want to make sure you get your piece. <laughs> no, Don's great. He has like a lot of deep, deep info on this. So it's just great. Um, people don't realize when they're putting a photo online, you know, we're talking just not even professional photographers, amateur photographers, whoever, what kind of risk they're exposing themselves to legally. And if you do take a photo of somebody and put it up on Unsplash. You are the one. Somebody didn't steal it elsewhere. You put it on there and say, okay, everybody, you guys can go ahead and use this and license it, you know, whatever as you as you wish. You haven't gotten that model release from that person. You're the one who's going to be sued. People don't understand how much they expose themselves legally. And I think most photographers really don't know. Even if even the ones who are professional and doing this, you know, and they're this is how you earn your living. I I talk to photographers all the time who have just no idea about getting a property release or the model release or what they can and can't do. And that's there I don't I feel like there's not one central source you can go to to get like the definitive answer for this. And of course it varies from country to country too. So there's a lot of confusion and there probably always will be unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one last thing, because I don't want to take this too far. But speaking of all that and people, the photographers who are vigilant, we, Shaki, you and I brought this up in a previous episode with copyright, you know, how many photographers just don't even bother to to protect themselves with filing for copyright. And and to me, listen, you have to share. I've I've said this many times. I believe that the natural life cycle of a a photo or or of any creative uh, output is that it ends with sharing it. And so that's great. No one's saying you shouldn't. But you should also, if you do care about protecting uh, your your intellectual property and the fact and how the controlling how that gets used outside of, for example, embedding a tweet, you know, you have to copyright it. You have to submit that. And it's, yeah, it's frustrating and it costs some money and it takes some time. But, uh, you know, you really don't have much of a leg to stand on if, uh, you know, you cry foul and uh, and it turns out you didn't even bother to protect yourself where you can. Uh, capture for like punitive damages so with that i think unless uh, don or sharky you have anything else you want to add to this i think we've uh, beaten this one down pretty good uh photographers just need to be aware that services like unsplash they're not 
in your favor. I mean, you're using that as a portal to give your work away for free and you have no um, no control over what happens from that. And, and that's fine. I'm not going to say don't do that. I mean, I've put one of my Snowflake images in the public domain um, late last year just to see where it ends up. Somebody, uh, you know, uh, crocheted a version of it. Somebody uh, built it into a Photoshop brush that brush, brushes snowflakes all over the place. And I've seen it used in ads because it's relatively easy to drag an image in Google. And maybe people should try to do this uh, to see where your images end up. You can use an image as a search term. So I can take that snowflake yep. and I can click on the little camera icon and show where it has ended up online. And I was surprised at some of the locations, uh, especially in foreign countries. And I have no idea what the associated text is with the image, but I'm no longer in control that. I gave that one away for free as an experiment. But you can always track down and see where your images end up. And it's not a tricky thing to do. So just be aware uh, that people, even if you are not posting your images on something like Unsplash, if they can be found through a Google image search, then the pervasive mentality on the internet is, oh, well, if I found it on Google, it must be free. So keep in mind, your images are probably being stolen in one way, shape or form, whether or not they're on Unsplash, it just gives people a reason to take them. Now, a final comment, though, on that end about public domain stuff. There's a reason why certain artists like uh, uh, writers like Mark Twain or Oscar Wilde are so well known and quoted today. You've probably heard the names of both of those artists before because their work is 100% in the public domain. If anybody wants to quote Mark Twain, it's free to do so. You don't have to contact anybody. You don't have to negotiate a license. Um, it's all out there for anybody to use. Now, quotes generally are associated to the person who said those words, and so their name is pervasive across it. There is some value in people not having to worry about a license. But if you're trying to make any money whatsoever at your work, whether it's to pay the bills or just to buy a new lens, you're effectively acknowledging that your work has zero value. And I don't think any photographer should do that. I'd like to thank you for putting that snowflake in the public domain, by the way, because that snowflake doily that I crocheted was awesome. <laughs> you are so welcome, Mike. And you chose to crochet that one specifically so that you wouldn't have to pay me a penny. That's great. That's right. Oh. I, I stuck it to you, Don. <laughs> well played. Well played. Um, so with that, we I mean, the show ends always with a, a very fateful question, and we always like to ask our guests this question first. So, Don, what's on your gear shelf? Uh, I, if you saw my gear shelf, we could do a whole show on just that. I chose something that would not be on any other photographer's gear shelf, and it's typically used in electron microscopy. Uh, you can oh, get- man. <laughs> Um, it, uh, you can get it from uh, laboratory supply companies. This is a 1% solution of polyvinyl acetal resin and ethylene dichloride, uh, which is commonly called Formvar. And Formvar is a solution that doesn't freeze until about minus 40. And it will cure around a subject in maybe about an hour or so. I use it to preserve snowflakes outside. So anybody that is in a cold part of the world that gets snow and snowflakes in the wintertime and might want to try their hand at photographing them, but need some practice indoors, you can either get some of this stuff or super glue. Super glue also works. It freezes at about uh, minus 20. The active ingredient is cyanoacrylate. It's not as flexible and it takes longer to cure. But the idea of taking a very transient temporary subject from outside and bringing it inside can be very valuable. And we were talking about uniqueness of work and niche and value throughout uh, this conversation. 
Well, what I've done is I've actually photographed the real snowflake, uh, you know, untouched uh, in, in nature. And then I've taken that and preserved it on a microscope slide. And then I framed that microscope slide in the frame with the print of the, of, of the snowflake photograph. And that just adds some level of absolute uniqueness to that piece. It is a one of one. It's a very hard thing to do in photography. But a lot of people listening probably have kids and it's a really fun exercise to uh, to just take some of this, uh, well, this maybe with kids use super glue because this stuff has like hazardous materials stuff and cancer labels and things like that. Don't eat it. It's a really bad idea. But uh, no, you can preserve snowflakes is basically what I'm saying. And you can use them as an indoor subject to photograph or to find extra value with your work. So uh, nobody else will ever pick that one. That is awesome. Is that do you cover that kind of like allowing a, a plug for your book? Is that covered in the book on page 97? There you go. And that book, by the way, is Sky Crystals, and you can get it at skycrystals.ca. Beautiful. Nice. I checked and you cannot get that on Amazon. We're just going to have to, yeah, we're going to need to find a link or something. You can actually, Sharky. I bought this on Amazon. It cost me $11 for the bottle of it and $90 to have it shipped to me because it has to be shipped in like 15 layers of hazardous materials packaging. That was crossing the border to Canada. So it's probably cheaper if you find a source local to your own country. I must not have looked up the right thing then because it didn't come up. I'll send you a link. Sharky, what's on your gear shelf? What's on my gear shelf is something that we've talked about a little bit before and used to be free until David Hobby started talking about it. And then all of a sudden they start charging. Roscoe, Roscoe Lux. It's a small swatch book. They're one and seven sixteenth inches by three and one eighth inches approximate. It says pieces of gels to go over your flash or lights, etc. You know, color temperature gels. So they've got everything in there. If you need a quarter CTO, a half CTO, you know, color temperature orange to change the color of the light coming out of your flash to orange to match it with your ambient lighting and whatever room you're in or to go the other direction, change it to blue, you CTB or just for creative effect. There's one of each color in there and you're probably only going to use one. If you use more, you can buy a sheet of it for like 10 bucks or whatever. So it's $10.90 now on Amazon. I suggest everyone get it. There's commercial products you can get from Expo Imaging and others that are more robust solutions and with mounting straps, etc. But what I did back in my PJ days was just had these Roscoe Lux gels and I'd have some good old gaffer tape and I would tape these all over my flash, you know, the top and the bottom from the head part. Uh, And then when I need it i could just take it off put it right there in the front and i was good to go so there you go just like a coat hanger and a fresnel lens will be a better beamer for you at a fraction of the price um and you can go that route and it'll work perfectly fine there's just a little bit of elbow grease involved in that and you get the same results and a fresnel lens costs five bucks whatever it happens to be Uh, that's a really cool idea I love the kind of DIY kind of hacks in this case. And I, I remember the whole, you know, when Roscoe started charging, or I think it used to be like a quarter or something. Wasn't there, Sharky, like that that booklet? You can get it from B&H. You could add it for like a penny in B&H. Something but- like that. Yeah. <laughs> What's on your gear shelf, Brian? Well, thanks for asking, Sharky. Um, for me, this is kind of, you know, <laughs> we're really kind of running. Uh, I'm running the gamut of the accessories that I think people will find enjoyable that aren't lenses and cameras. But this is more for, you know, I've been doing a lot more kind of B-roll stuff. Uh, just have a GoPro uh, latched onto my 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 backpack shoulder uh, or just on a tripod. So the thing is, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll also set up a mic, a small like road mic. And the problem with these GoPros is because they're so svelte, they don't really have a lot of surface area to do much with. So this company called Luxbell, 
L-U-X-E-B-E-L-L. They make this kind of like a cage, this armor f- that's form-fitting, and I'm sure they make them for the newer GoPros. This is this one's for the GoPro Hero 5. But what I love about it, two things. One, it adds a, I believe this is a 52 or 59 millimeter thread. So if I want to put a polarizer on the front of the GoPro, I can do that, which is great. But also it has a bunch of these kind of like holes to, you know, try standard tripod screws. And one of them, it comes with this cold shoe adapter. So I can mount my mic on the side of it or on the top of it, or even on the bottom. Um, you can also mount, you know, add a, a, pretty much, this is like a cage you would find typically for say like a, a Sony A7S, you know, or, or where you're doing a lot of video, typically those cameras are housed in these cages that support attaching all a variety of gimbals and, and accessories and lights. Think of this just downsized it for this the size of a GoPro, and I, I really like it. You know, I've used it a lot. Uh, that was the first, as soon as I got that GoPro, the first thing that I realized was like, man, how am I supposed to mount a mic to this? Because the onboard microphone is garbage. So fortunately, it does support a microphone in through USB-C and all that jazz. Awesome. Great pick, Brian. So Thanks. this was a good episode, I think. A great episode, I might say. What do you say, Don? Well, I mean, we're all clearly biased. It was the best yet, right? <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. So before we clap it out, let's tell everybody where they can find us. So go ahead, Don Komarechka. Well, if you go to doncom.ca, that's where my portfolio and all of my social media links are. Please get in touch if you want to uh, discuss any of my work or the opinions expressed on this podcast. I'm happy to keep the conversation going. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, photogeekweekly.com, the location for my new podcast. And just to clarify, when, when Don says doncom, it's D-O-N-K-O-M. D-O-N-K-O-M dot C-A. Yep, dot C-A. So not doncom.com.com. Dot com, dot com. <laughs> I actually Just own the dot com as well. If you go there, you'll get to me anyhow. Uh, even better. I love hearing that. Uh, I'm not even going to lie. While we were talking, I went on Google Domains and registered multimediographer.com. Fantastic. It wasn't Run with taken it. surprisingly. <laughs> yeah. Sharky, what about you? You can find me, of course, at the Petapixel Photography Podcast, petapixel.com slash podcast, or just type in Petapixel in your favorite podcatcher, P-E-T-A-P-I-X-E-L. I'm on social everywhere at Lens Shark, and that's about it. So where can people find you, Brian? Um, so my website is matiash.com. That's M-A-T-I-A-S-H.com. And on the socials everywhere, I am at Brian Matiash, B-R-I-A-N-M-A-T-I-A-S-H. And of course, you can find us here at the nonamephotoshow.com. Awesome. What do you say we clap it out? You ready? Ready, Don? We're going to do it on three. Here we go. One, two. We'll fix it in post because of Don. (laughs) Don, thank you so much. Really quickly, Don, thank you so much for being a guest. Sharky, love you as always, man. I took your love you from you. And uh, (laughs) later. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the No Name Photo Show. Sharky and I would be thrilled if you would subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using and tell a friend. How about we do this again next episode? Yeah, let's do that.